0: Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, ex-MOD industrial chemist Dr Barry Mule will explore the construction of major explosives and shell filling factories during the Second World War, the conditions within these factories and the role of the factories in the making of modern women. Thank you June, Uh, good evening ladies and gentlemen. This is a topic very dear to my heart it's an aspect of the home front in the First World War that these days is all but forgotten and to my mind it shouldn't be and I say that for three reasons firstly um, if the coalition government had not put British, uh, the whole of Britain and British industry on a total war footing in 1915 we would not have come out of that war on the winning side and secondly it's, it's a fantastic story in its own right. What was actually done in those three years between 1915 and 1918 is always worth telling. And thirdly, there's a, there's a social aspect, and that's the, um, the attitude of society towards women. Women were employed right across industry in the First World War and the result was not only did society have a, a, a totally different view of women's capabilities at the end of the war and bear in mind that one of the arguments used at the beginning of before the war for not giving women the vote was the fact that not only were they physically weaker they were also intellectually weaker. That was no longer the case at the end of the war and also women's Uh, perception of their own abilities through their experience had totally changed and that had a lasting effect this is the period of remembrance and I think it's worth recalling that a large number of people did actually die in in these factories during the war I can't give you an exact figure what I can tell you is in, in the government owned factories there were 212 people killed in the commercial explosive sector in just four major explosives there were 269 people killed now the, a figure for the government factories Includes people who, who died individually in small accidents We don't have a figure collated for that for the, um, uh, for the commercial sector But it would be of the order of several dozen So we are talking about over 500 people Who have lost their lives in these factories In the line of duty I want to start this evening With this chap, you all recognise him uh, Lord Kitchener very distinguished uh, pre-war colonial soldier at the beginning of the war he was, uh, uh, he was um, seconded by uh, the Prime Minister Asquith to be Secretary of State for war and his two major duties were one to make sure that the British Army was of a size commensurate with the task and the other one was to make sure that they had the equipment that they would need now, in, the, in the first of those he was spectacularly successful uh, he set out to recruit 100,000 men in August 1914 by January 1915 he had recruited 1 million men and by September 1915 2 and a quarter million men had flocked to the colours and they they say that to this day it's the greatest advertising campaign there has ever been but he wasn't so good when it came to provisioning this new army he took the view that Uh, given sufficient contract cover that the existing armament suppliers could meet the requirement. Now, I want to tell you that the existing um, armament suppliers were essentially Woolwich Arsenal, where they made guns and artillery ammunition, the Royal Gunpowder Mills at uh, Waltham Abbey, where they made the Cordite propellant, a handful of high-explosives... Manufacturers all linked either directly or indirectly with uh, Nobel explosives, two rifle and small arms ammunition manufacturers, uh, Vickers making machine guns, and uh, Armstrong up in the northeast making very large naval guns, and that was about it. Now, by the end of 1914, it was becoming very obvious to politicians that this uh, uh, manufacturing base was nowhere near adequate to replenish the amounts of ammunition that were being used in France. This photograph here was taken in Belgium at the back end of 1914 and it shows you quite a healthy uh, stock of ammunition being loaded into the 18-pounder limbers there compare that with this photograph which was taken after the bombardment of Free Corps in the Battle of the Somme in about August 1916 that's the sort of amount of ammunition that uh, the artillery could get through once it became available to them there's a lovely photograph there. It's actually an 18-pounder gun coming into action at the Battle of Arras in uh, April 1917. And I put it there just to show how much ammunition one gun could expect to have available at the, out, at the beginning of a, of a set-piece battle. Things came to a head in March 1915 at the, the Battle of Neuve-Chapelle. Uh, Lord French, the, uh, the uh, leader of the British Expeditionary Force, blamed the lack of British success on the, um, a lack of artillery shell. What he basically said was that the artillery did not have enough shell to fire at the enemy's defences, to destroy the enemy defences, before the infantry attacked. Lord French was a, a very good friend of Lord Northcliffe, who owned the Times and the Mail and um, on the 15th of May 1915 the Daily Mail carried a headline the Shell scandal, Lord Kitchener's fatal blunder and the the Times carried a similar sort of article. Not as a result of that, coincidentally really, but a couple of weeks after that the uh, Asquith Liberal government fell and was replaced by a coalition government one of the first things the coalition government did was to wrest the supply of munitions from the army and put it under the control of a new ministry of munitions headed by this man, David Lloyd George. Now, whatever you think of Lloyd George, you have to accept that, agree that he was a man of vision. And he had a very clear vision for his new ministry. He, he didn't want just another department government department he wanted a business organization managed by businessmen with a proven um, business record what he called men of push and go and above all he wanted the, the total involvement of british industry and this is the first time the british industry and we're talking june 1915 the first time the british industry had been asked to get involved in the supply of munitions You probably didn't expect to be introduced to a bunch of cowboys this afternoon. I want to draw your attention to this chap here. This photograph was taken out in the West Texas Plains in 1883. To his fellow cowboys, he was probably known as Limey. To his mother, Mrs Boyle, he was known as Godfrey John. And when his father died, he became formally known as the 8th Viscount Chetwynd. If ever a man deserved a medal for his contribution to the war effort, it is Lord uh, Lord Chetwynd. He was exactly the sort of man that uh, Lord George was looking for. Some years after that photograph was taken, he returned to England. And by 1910, he was a director of Vickers Engineering. He was asked in August uh, 1915 to come down to the war office for a discussion with Sir Frederick Black, the newly created Director General of Munition Supply. And Sir Frederick asked him, would he be prepared to undertake the construction and, and, and running of a factory to produce shell of the largest calibre uh, using Amatol as far as possible at a rate of 1,000 tonnes of high explosive per week. So what, what we're talking about is shell like the ones you see here. This is actually a 15-inch um, howitzer. The photograph was taken at uh, Engelbelmer Wood on the Somme in early in 1917. It was operated by the Royal Marine Artillery. It was capable of firing that projectile, which weighs half a ton, out to a, a range of 10 miles. And I put that photograph in because I used to have a little dog like that when I was a boy. So that was his challenge, if he were willing to accept it. Would he build a factory to fill a shell like this with uh, amatol at the rate of 1,000 tonnes? Um, now, I've got to explain here this term amatol. When we went to war in 1914, the British artillery shell uh, were filled with uh, an old-fashioned, uh, not particularly powerful explosive called lydite, and if any chemists in the room, trinitrophenol unlike the, uh, the Germans and the French who were already filling their shell with a much more modern, much more powerful explosive TNT (trinitrotoluene), toluene. And the decision was taken quite early on in the first few months of the war that we had to go across to using TNT. But there was a problem. TNT is made from toluene and at that time there wasn't a lot of toluene available therefore there was a, a real shortage of TNT. TNT So, Toluene was obtained from the refining of crude oil and it varies depending on where the crude oil comes from but it just so happened that uh, Shell at the time were importing Borneo crude oil into this country and Borneo crude oil gives a disproportionate (coughs) amount of toluene. Shell were amenable to uh, increasing the amount of crude oil they brought in from Borneo and therefore in the sort of uh, a few months down the line, there was the potential of adequate supplies of toluene and therefore adequate supplies of TNT. The problem was what to do in the interim. This problem was given to the scientists down at Woolwich Arsenal. <clears throat> and They discovered that you could mix up to 80% of ammonium nitrate with uh, trinitrotoluene toluene with no diminution of explosive power. Now, we all know ammonium nitrate. It's still used to this day as a fertilizer. Even before the First World War, it was being produced in very large quantities by a a company called Brunner Mond at Northwich in Cheshire. It was very readily available, and it was very, very cheap. So Lord Chetwin's challenge, were he to accept it, to um, manufacture amatol on a very, very large scale, and to introduce the filling of very large shell on a production basis, neither of which had been done up to that point. He protested to uh, Sir Frederick Black that he actually thought he may have got the wrong man because he, uh, Lord Chetwynd, knew nothing about explosives. And he was persuaded to go down to Woolwich Arsenal on a Sunday morning, the following Sunday, to speak to the experts there, to get a feel for the, uh, the project before he finally made up his mind. He went down, saw the experts, and he confided in his, uh, uh, to a friend, these were not experts as you and I understand the term. And he later wrote, I realised I must hope for no assistance from others, but must work out the matter for myself, although at that time completely ignorant of the properties of either ammonium nitrate or TNT. He um, did take on the job, very fortuitously. That's a photograph of him taken uh, in 1920. And this is how he went about um, the job, setting up the job. Two days after he accepted the the job, he got into his car... got his chauffeur to drive him from Nottingham down to Birmingham. He expected, he was looking for a greenfield site. What he was looking for essentially was a greenfield site next to a main railway line adjacent to a large, uh, a, a large town or city where there would be a, a, a good pool of potential employers, employment. He only got four miles up the road. He got as far as Chilwell, just four miles out of Nottingham, found exactly what he wanted, ordered his chauffeur to turn around and take him back into Nottingham And he used the defence of the Realm Act to appropriate the site, a couple of farms and an orchard. So he had his site right next to the main railway line between uh, Nottingham and Derby. He then recruited key managers to work with, and even men that had worked with him at uh, at Vickers, whose ability and and judgment he trusted. And he then went on a whistle-stop tour of, uh, of the country. He first went down to um, an explosives factory at Faversham where they were making powdered amatol in, uh, in sort of tonnage quantities, the occasional ton, for trials at Woolwich Arsenal. He saw what they were doing and he immediately realised that this was not the way that this this process, essentially the process that they, uh, or the equipment that they used for making gunpowder, there was no way you could scale that up to the sort of quantities that he would have to produce. He then went up to Huddersfield and visited two dye companies where uh, part of the factories of the the two plants had been converted to the manufacture of TNT. He can. He had a look around these two factories and convinced himself that actually, given sensible precautions, TNT was not a problem material to handle in a factory situation. He went down to uh, Northwich and he visited the uh, Brunamon factory to get a feel for ammonium nitrate. And While he was there, he, um, he was impressed by how similar ammonium nitrate is to refined sugar. So he took himself down to a silver town in the east end of London, not far from the Olympic Stadium. And he visited the Lyle Refinery there to see how they sifted and handled uh, their sugar. While he was there, he just went up the road a couple of miles to the Rank flour mill to see how they handled their uh, flour in large quantities. He gave them uh, various feasibility trials to do all of which came back uh, remarkably positive and that is why the Ametol mill, uh, the ammonium nitrate mill and the amatol plant at Chilwell looks very much like a cross between a sugar refinery and a flour mill. And that photograph was taken in 1917. So this was the Amatol side of the business sorted. He then turned his attention to shell filling That's actually a photograph of a a factory at Elizabethville, up uh, at what is now Birtley, and it was built specifically to employ Belgian refugees in uh, munitions work, making these large shells. Lord um, Chetwind got wind of a a delegation that was going over to France, a, a Ministry of Munitions delegation, going across to France to look at how they produced their shell. He got himself attached to the delegation, went across to France, and in one factory he saw that they were, uh, they were taking these large shell, standing one end, putting a funnel in the, in the nose end where you screw the fuse in, pouring in a measured amount of powdered, uh, TNT, vibrating it down, and then compressing it with a hydraulic press, hydraulic ram. And he realized that if you could do that with TNT, you could do it with a powdered amatol. So he came home and he had a few trials conducted, and again, very, very uh, successful trials. So he now had the second part of his problem solved. And for a man like Lord Chetwynd, the rest was easy. They actually uh, started building the plant in September 1915, oh, less than one month. Uh, between his accepting the job and, um, and, and construction. And I put this photograph in to show you, it says there circa 1914, it was actually taken in November 1915, but I want to make the point that everything you see there was in short supply. Uh, the whole of British industry was, was building factories to manufacture all manner of things, so steel for construction was in short supply, steel for cladding, bricks, if you look closely, there's a chap. It's the first time I've actually been able to see this fellow without a magnifying glass, but I knew he was in there. Labour was in very short supply. Nevertheless, by January of uh, 1916, they had the factory wasn't complete, but it was producing shell. It was producing shell in April 1916, at a rate of 7,000 shell per 12-hour shift. And the workers were exclusively male. They were men who were either too old or too young for military service or they were wounded ex-soldiers. They realised that they would have to go on to shift working. But to do that, they would probably have to employ women. Now, women were already being employed in in the engineering industry. The engineering factories all over the country employed women. Not a problem. Lord Chetwynd was firmly of the opinion that women should not be working in explosive factories. The work was too heavy, too dangerous, and it was not fit work for women to do. Before I move on to show you the, the, uh, the, the next photo, I want to draw your attention to what this lady is wearing. Think really if, if she were to stop and stand, stand upright, that skirt would probably come down around her ankles. The first girls started work at Chilwell in April 1916, and that's what they were wearing. I think think they probably called them jumpsuits. In those days, they called them one-piece suits. And those are probably some of the first women to wear trousers at work. I do like that photograph. Um, They gave them... Two or three days of basic safety instruction and then they put them into the factories and one of the first places they put women were the overhead cranes in the filled shell and empty shell stores and there's a lady called Lottie Wiggins who recalled in the 1970s that she'd worked in a tannery and she and her friend uh, were not too happy with the, the pay they were getting, they'd heard that this new factory up the road was uh, uh, recruiting women and offering good pay, so they thought they'd go along and, and try their luck they were both taken on and within four days she was, it's probably in this photograph here, she was operating one of those overhead cranes. Quite remarkable. The output, uh, they were now on 24-hour working, two-shift 24-hour work, and the output increased in a matter of a few weeks to a weekly output of 9,800 tons of amatol and 130,000 shell filled each week. by December 1916 they had filled their one millionth shell at Chilwell. All 30 all the large shell fired at the Battle of the Somme were, uh, had been filled at Chilwell uh, and I suspect that most of the shell you see here would also be filled. These are, these are I think 9.2 inch howitzer it's shell. In June the middle of June 1918 this is leaping forward a few years they actually set a production record and the production record that they set was 46,725 shell filled in a 24-hour period just think of that 46,000 of those filled in 24 hours. Let's have a look at what chill was like as a place to work and the first thing to say it was absolutely huge Building 157, the field shell store, area of building eight and a half acres, holding approximately 700,000 shells. Absolutely enormous. These girls, I don't know if I... I, I, I jumped got ahead of myself earlier on. There was a very large pool of available labour in Nottingham because um, the traditional the, uh, business industry in Nottingham had been lace-making. And once we went to war, no one wanted to spend money on something as frivolous as lace, to be seen to be spending money on something like lace. And the industry collapsed in a matter of a week or two. So, so there was a very large number of uh, unemployed lace makers that uh, chill was able to, to draw on. The conditions in the factory were... Uh, to say that he's spartan and a lot of the work was like all factory work repetitive and a bit boring but you could say that no more so than working in a a lace making factory there was a chap called Horace Nichols who was an official war photographer he was sent up to take photographs at uh, Chirwell and he took these photographs and he also took those photographs I think he must have taken quite a shine to this young lady because if you look at the nape of her neck he photographed her on two occasions but you just think, if she had been a lacemaker before the war, look at the responsibility she has now. Look, at, look how relaxed she appears to be. There's no way that at the end of the war, they were closed in, in 1918, the factory was, was shut, and within days of the armistice, the workforce was laid off. Imagine her going back into service and curtsying to, uh, um, to the employer every time she met him on the stair. I put those photographs in to show the enormity of, of Chill. These top two photographs are taken in the empty shell store, and the bottom two are taken in the filled shell store. Here you see a lady screwing in a fuse, and here you see the actual fuse shell. And I put those photographs up because I wanted to make the point that Lord Chilla, um Lord Shetwind conceived this factory in, in the round, but he was in the habit of walking around and talking to the workforce. And getting to know what their problems were. And one of the problems that he encountered very early on was how do you move these, uh, these shells around? And it was Lord Chetwynd who came up with these threaded lifting rings here that you just screwed into the, uh, the nose of, of the shell, and you could then lift them up. Those overhead cranes could then lift a couple of dozen or so and move them around the, the factory. Because you couldn't do that with, with the, the fill shell, you had to use these um, chain mail nets. The pay at, uh, at Chihuahua for the time was remarkably good. At a time when um, farm labourers were earning 16 shillings a week, these girls were earning between, uh, to, you, to you and I, ladies and gentlemen, 30 shillings and £2, pound. one pound fifty to you youngsters and £2. Pound. So remarkably good. A lot of those girls were taking home more money than their fathers were earning. I, I do like this. This is the main canteen at Chua. And I do like the, these cloaks and, and bonnets along the side there. But they um, paid great attention to. Uh, the welfare of the workforce. And one of the things that that was particularly good was food. And if you were in the danger area, for 10 pence a shift, you were entitled to two meals. You were entitled to an egg and bacon type meal when you arrived at work. And halfway through the shift, you were entitled to a uh, meat and two veg meal for 10 pence a shift. Now bear in mind that when they had been working down in their little lace-making factories in Nottingham, they'd probably got up in the morning, had a mug of tea and a slice of bread and dripping, and stopped halfway through the, uh, the morning for their cheese sandwich. They had no holidays. They worked six days a week, uh, week in, week out. They actually had three, ho- three days holiday a year, Tuesday, two days at Christmas, and uh, one day at Easter. Welfare, uh, health and welfare were, were particularly important. Uh, Chihua had its own uh, qualified medical staff and its own medical centre. Had its own band, which used to play lunchtime concerts. Uh, a couple of people there dancing the walls or, or whatever the uh, dance of the time was. And unless I'm very much mistaken, I think that's Lord Chetwynd in the middle. They had a variety of... Um, of, of sporting clubs, sporting teams, football, cricket, tennis, and ladies' football. I uh, think you can read that. That says, Ladies, lady, uh, Ladies Football Team, 1916, with Wounded Soldiers Team, result of match not known. And there was nothing unusual about ladies' football teams. All the big factories had women's football teams. Women, uh, football, women's football was very popular right up until I think it was 1921, when it was banned by the Football Association. I put that photograph in because I think it encapsulates the enormity of the undertaking. This is Attenborough Station. There's a train approaching here. It's either from coming from Nottingham uh, en route to Derby or the other way around. But either way, it would have been standing room only when that train left the station. No shortage, as you might imagine, of important visitors. Uh, Lord George visited the factory twice, and in December 1916, the king himself paid a visit. visit. There's Lord Chetwynd showing him around the field shell store. That picture actually uh, appeared in most of the national newspapers in this country. It also appeared in a couple of newspapers in Germany, and one of them had the heading, What a pity one of those shells didn't land on his head. I'm sorry that's, uh, that's very fuzzy, but if, if, if you can just about make out that uh, there's a young lady there sitting on a barrel of gunpowder smoking a cigarette, expecting a rise shortly. <laughs> the nitro explosives, Lydite and TNT, are very toxic compounds. They cause, um, they cause liver jaundice, and uh, it is said that over 100 people died at Woolwich Arsenal before they made the link between um, Lydite and this this jaundice that was well understood by the time they built cheerwell and um, they paid great attention to ventilation but nevertheless those girls as you probably know did suffer from uh, jaundice they their skin went yellow and if you had a certain hair coloring I quite got bottomless I think it's red hair or blonde hair it tended to go green they were known as the Chilwell Canaries and down at Woolwich they were known as the Woolwich Canaries and Bambo, the Bambo Balm- Canaries and so on. That uh, uh, jawn essentially was reversible so after a year or so after they'd finished working at uh, at Chilwell it had disappeared. But above all there was the um, the, the danger of explosion. You all recognise those oh, those are dummy bags, you see them in uh, builders, merchants and building sites and so they're designed to hold a tonne of gravel, ballast, sand, that sort of thing, a metric tonne. One of those dumpy bags would hold a pre-metric tonne of amatol. On a 12 minutes past 7 in the evening of Friday, the 1st of July, 1918, and it was a scorching hot day. It was, it was a, um, almost a record, uh, record day. Twelve, twelve minutes past seven, eight tons of amatol exploded and turned that into that and that. Those two pictures are taken from a book, one above the other, that said to be a continuation, so I looked to see if I could join them together, and they do sort of join together. So you can see a scene of utter devastation. 134 people were killed, 20, 24 of them, 25 of them women, and at the epicentre they were just blown to pieces and their bodies were not recovered. Further 250 people were injured, of which 50 were seriously injured, and I think that means had lost their limbs happened next is quite remarkable this happened at 12 minutes past 7 in the evening the next morning all but 12 of the workforce turned up for work now if you think, we're talking about 7,000 people on any given day out of a workforce of seven thousand people, there would have been a dozen who were not well enough to come to work. So what we're saying is, everyone turned up for work the next day. Some were turned away; others were put to work in their bits of the factory, getting it ready to resume production. And they did. Uh, I think by the, by that weekend, they had issued seven thousand they had filled seven thousand eight hundred shell, and they issued. 27,800 shells that had been filled just prior to the explosion. By the armistice, they were back in production at a rate of, if I can find it, at a rate of 230,000 filled shells per week. Yes. Uh, two. Uh, that was at the armistice. It's gradually built up, but that was the figure at the armistice. I did say at the beginning that if ever a man deserved a medal for his contribution to effort, it was Lord Checkmind. I'm pleased to say he got one after fashion. In 1917, he was made one of the first 20 recipients of a new Order of Merit, the Companions of Honour, chosen personally by the King. He was. Uh, very highly regarded by the workforce. He was often, as I say, to be seen walking around the factory chatting to people. And when this was announced, they, they had a collection and they paid for this portrait to be painted. And it's an interesting portrait because in the background there you can see the ammonium nitrate mill, and on the desk next to his coronet you can see the cross seas, the Chilwell Crest. That was all he did get. He, After the war... uh, The government set up uh, an inventions committee and they said, uh, if you subjected any sort of um, original idea to the government and they took it up and it proved to be useful, make a claim and, and receive a payment. His friend said to Lord Chetwin, you should put in a claim, which he duly did. And it was rejected on the grounds that he was paid to oversee the uh, construction and operation of the factory. It was not part of his responsibility to devise methods for shell filling. So uh, probably a lesson there somewhere, I suspect. By the end of the war, there were 10 of these national shell factories. The early ones, like uh, Bombo at Leeds, were based on processes uh, in operation down at Woolish Arsenal, but the later ones used TOL processes almost exclusively. I now want for the second part of my talk, <coughs> I want to look at Cordite. First time I gave this talk, I assumed that my audience knew what cordite was and I was taken to task. So far, I've been talking about shell filling. There's the shell, and there's high-explosive filling. Now I want to look at this stuff. This is actually an 18-pound, sectioned 18 18 eighteen-pound of round-round ammunition. There's the shell. There's the brass cartridge case. There's the igniter. And we're now looking at this stuff, cordite propellant. Think of it in terms of long strands of brown spaghetti tied together with silk ties. What actually happens is when you pull the lanyard and and the firing pin strikes the the igniter here, which duly ignites, those grains of gunpowder you see burn through the front of the igniter, uh, ignite the rear of the cordite, it burns cigarette fashion from that end to that end in a matter of just a few milliseconds, generating very large quantities of very hot gas, causing very high pressures, we're talking about several tonnes per square inch, something has to give, and it's the shell. The shell gets pushed up the barrel of the gun and away. So just want to spend a little bit of time looking at cordite propellant. If you wanted to make some at home, these are the raw materials you would need. You would need a very pure pure cellulose, and the purest uh, form of cellulose you can get is cotton. Now, it just so happened that at the beginning of the First World War, Britain had a major uh, cotton-spinning industry in Lancashire, When you take cotton balls and spin them, you have first to comb out the short strands because you can only use the the long cotton strands for spinning. Consequently, half of that cotton gets combed out and put to one side, and it's called cotton waste. It's exactly what you want for making cordite. So we had a a ready supply of, of cellulose available. You take that cellulose, you treat it with a, very strong mix, a mixture of very strong nitric and sulfuric acid to produce nitrocellulose, which you then wash free of acid. Add a mixture of, of two solvents, acetone, sorry, alcohol and ether. And what you finish up with is a gelatinous goo. Put that to one side. Let's have a look at this. You don't actually use soap. What you use is this stuff. Uh, Chemists call it glycerol. You probably know it as glycerin or glycerine. It's a byproduct of soap manufacture. But during the First World War, so much glycerol was required, actually, the soap became the byproduct. You do exactly the same thing with uh, uh, the glycerol. You treat it with a mixture of those two very strong acids to produce nitroglycerin, which you know about. You know, nitroglycerin is a very powerful, very unstable explosive. So as soon as you make it, you have to get it dissolved in acetone to make it safe to handle. The third thing you need is petroleum jelly, good old-fashioned Vaseline. And you have to add that to the mixture to uh, make the, the, those sticks flexible and also to stabilize the nitrocellulose, which is, which is prone to um, uh, uh, self-degradation. So that's the process. Get those, get those two nitrated, mix them with Vaseline jelly, produce a dough, squeeze that dough through hydraulically through multi-hole dyes to give you very, very long strands of cordite, cut it to length. Uh, it's, it, it's full of solvent at that stage, so it's then taken away to uh, steam-heated what are called stove houses, and it's stoved. The uh, solvent is actually heated out, cooked out of the uh, cordite. It's actually recovered and reused. Once you've, you've done that, you have to send the a sample away to the laboratories for analysis, for chemical analysis, and, equally importantly, ballistic analysis, because every batch is slightly the ballistics, of every batch is slightly different. Once you've done that, it's a bit like whiskey, where you, you blend various batches of whiskey to get what you want. You, you blend various batches of your cordite to give you the ballistics that you require. So that's the process. Very simple process. In, towards the end of 1914, it became very obvious that Britain needed a, uh, a, another source of supply of cordite, that uh, we were relying at that time purely on Wartham Abbey, and Wartham Abbey was totally overloaded. On the 19th of December, just before Christmas 1914, a tele- I said tele- a, telex, a, a telegraph was sent to this man, Kenneth Bingham Quinnen who at the time was an an American, he was from California but he was down in South Africa running the world's largest uh, blasting explosives factory making explosives for the De Beers diamond mines and he was asked would he come get the next mail boat from um, Cape Town to London for urgent talks with the war department and I think his curiosity must have been piqued because that's exactly what he did he came up to London and he met Lord Moulton who was the chairman of the Committee for Explosives and Lord Moulton asked him would he be prepared to act as a consultant to the War Department for the design, construction and running of a new cordite factory at they were planning to build at this place Gretna up on the Scottish border. <coughs> he agreed to the uh, the conditions on offer and they started planning this amazing factory. It was to be built on three sites to the west of Gretna on 1300 acres of bog. They were going to build a place called Dornock. They were going to build a power station, uh, plants to make sulfuric and nitric acid Plant to make to convert the cellulose to nitrocellulose, another plant to make the nitroglycerin, and um, an assembly area where they actually mixed the nitrocellulose and the nitroglycerin to make what was known as paste. The next door to that, a 430 acre site at, um, at Cretna itself, they put the accommodation and administration building. And then to the east of Gretna, the actually the other side of the motorway, or, the, or is it the motorway? When you drive up to Scotland, I think it is at that stage. Um, the the long town side, the place called Mossband, um, another thirteen hundred acre site. They were going to build um, plant to mix that dough, that that paste with um, vaseline to produce dough, extrude the dough, all those stove houses to um, drive off the solvent the laboratories for uh, ballistic assessment and the boxing up and dispatching that was all going to be done on this other site. one of the first things that lloyd george did as uh, the new minister of munitions in june 1915 <coughs> excuse me, was to sign off the the plans excuse me <coughs> the plans for this site that didn't work try <coughs> That's actually an aerial view of um of Mosband there. And it shows the way cordite factors tend to be built. You tend to have lots of lots of uh, uh separate buildings doing the same thing. And the idea is that uh cordite obviously is very, very uh, inflammable. If it ignites, it will burn that building will burn down, but it will not affect what's going on in all these other buildings. That was what was planned. Um approval was given. And in August 19, uh, the the back end of of August 1915, work commenced on the factory. They brought in literally thousands of workers from all over the country, but in particular from Ireland. They brought in thousands of men from Ireland who worked for 12 months building that, uh, um, that factory. And they were actually in production in August 1916. That's what they built in those twelve months. Absolutely amazing. Total length of factory, nine point two miles by one and a half miles wide, two hundred process buildings, coal fired power station. Water pumping station, 54 steamboats, 30 miles of road, 40.5 miles of standard gauge railway, 49 miles of narrow gauge railway, 18 internal railway stations in that factory, 34 standard locomotives and 87 passenger coaches, 600 goods wagons. Absolutely. It is um, thought to be to this day the biggest factory that has ever been built. They actually hit their target of 800 tons of cordite per week in um, in, March, um, excuse me, in March 1917. And on the 18th of May, they received a royal visit by the king and, and queen. I put that photograph in. They've, they've just left the royal carriage and they are, um, there's a guard of honour there of women police officers, but those aren't just any women police officers, they are actually the first women police officers in the country, probably the first women police officers in the world. lovely photograph there of Queen Mary striding off, she's had, a, had the presentation, there's a thoughtful Kenneth Quinnan following on behind, and I would like to have be been within earshot of that conversation there, I think that would have been really interesting. At, its, at the time of the royal visit, um, Gretna employed 16,500 workers, of which 11,000 were women and 5,000 men. So we're talking a ratio of 2 to 1 women to men. They increased production after the royal visit. They actually got it up to 1,000 tonnes of cordite a week. <clears throat> and at that time, they were employing 30,000 people at the same 2 to 1 women to men ratio. Those wooden buildings were actually put up uh, in the first place to house the construction workers, but they were taken over for housing the the workers and families, uh, workers who had families. And they actually had, they accommodated somewhere in the region of 30,000 people. Single girls actually um, lived in them to start with, but they also built uh, brick hostels specifically for the single girls, 90 girls to a hostel. They built two townships, and this is what they actually provided for the workforce. At East Riggs, shop, cinema, hospital, two halls for recreational pursuits, two churches, school, post office, court of justice and fire station. And at Gretna they had those hostels, central shopping, market, bank, two more churches, an institute which is still there to this day, and a telephone exchange, a cinema and a telephone exchange. Absolutely unbelievable. Let's have a look at what went on in the factory. These are photographs of, of sorting one would expect to see in a cordite factory. And as you see, all being done by women. Here they're, they're taking the, uh, the bales of cotton <coughs> that have just come up from Lancashire, feeding them into this machine which tears them apart, fluffs them up, and here they, they f- they're feeding the, um, the fluffed up cotton into a nitrating pan, pan where they will treat it with a mixture of sulfuric and nitric acids, wash, it, wash the acid off it, off the stuff and they get left with this nitrocellulose here which, which they take out and process. Over here they're actually weighing out the um, <coughs> solution of nitroglycerin. <coughs> All the sort of things one would expect to see in a cordite factory. But on top of that the laboratories were run exclusively by women and some of the um, the heavier work was also done by women. So here you have women loading um, chilli saltpeter into that uh, tub there and here it's being fed into a kiln for roasting to make nitric acid. They had a very, um, very strict social segregation for these people if you were middle class or you'd had a good education that's the sort of job you would have found yourself doing if you were working class and proud of it you would have found yourself on the end of a pick they i had to put that photograph in that's actually the photograph of the moss band women's football team of 1917 you often see when you look at these old photographs you often see the women wearing this badge uh, they didn't wear it at work, but they were very proud to wear it when they were uh, out and about at weekends it's their war service badge. They like the, the women at uh, down at Tour were also particularly well paid. They were paid uh, the accounts very slightly, but they say they were paid between two and three pounds per week for. Working six, 12 hour shifts. Management thought, wouldn't it be a good idea? It would be more efficient if we changed the system so they only, they worked three, eight hour shifts. They would prefer that, wouldn't they, to working 12? Not a bit of it. It would have had such an impact on their, uh, the, the, the money they were earning that they fought, uh, they fought it and management did what management normally does, back down and they continued right to the end of, of the war working those 12 hour shifts. By the end of the war, they had manufactured a, a total, if I can find it, of um, 56,876 tons of cordite propellant. Kenneth Quinnon was also made a Companion of Honour in that first uh, list of 1917. After the war, he was offered a, um, an honorary knighthood. He was an American. He offered an honorary knighthood, which he uh, declined. He, when the war was over, he went back to South Africa, worked in the uh, explosive factory there for a few years. Then he retired, and he actually planted one of the first vineyards in South Africa. Gretna Chil- uh, itself closed. Within weeks of the armistice, and all those uh, uh, workers were laid off. They, they just received a letter thanking them for their services, but your services would no, be no longer required after Friday. So that was it. That's what you got. 1922, excuse me, 1922, they auctioned off all the plant and machinery, and in 1924, they had another auction, and they, they auctioned off 600 lots of accommodation. And if you go to if you go up to Gretna uh, now, you will see very little evidence of this major factory. There is actually a, a small museum there, uh, which is very interesting if you are passing through that way. But there's very little <coughs> left of the factory. I thought I would end with um, on a. On a a swords to plowshares note you all recognise that that's a Model T Ford the New York Times of the 21st of December 1921 carried an article to the effect that the Ford Motor Company had bought a very large quantity 11,700 tonnes of unwanted cordite from the British government at a knockdown price of 22 cents a pound and scientists in the uh, corporation laboratories had worked out a way of converting uh, this cordite into synthetic leather, and their plant, uh, the Ford plant at Highland Park, was already converting cordite to uh, synthetic leather at a rate of 25,000 square yards per week, sorry, per day. 25,000 square yards per day. So the chances are that that hostry there started life as Gretna chordite. And there we are.